Big-time college athletics can look like big business. The U.S. Supreme Court is taking a rare excursion into sports law. The NCAA also brings in more than a billion dollars a year, and that has unpaid players demanding a different business model. Taking the excess revenue that's generated by football and men's basketball, it has this distributional consequence of the revenue being generated by student-athletes that are disproportionately black towards student-athletes that are uh, more likely to be white. We're talking about college sports. For the players, is this education or labor? A Supreme Court hearing in March brought the issue of player compensation back into the headlines. On this episode of The Pie, we'll talk about what happens to the profits from college sports. Who's winning big and who isn't? This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie. How it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of the day. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about college sports and who profits from amateurism. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago. College sports, especially men's football and basketball, bring in lots of money to universities. And yet, U.S. student-athletes don't share in any of the profits. To understand who's benefiting, I talked with Matt Notowadigdo, a professor at the Booth School of Business, and Michael McCann, founding director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute at the University of New Hampshire. So let me start with uh, a couple of numbers here from Matt's research. Uh, in 2006, Division I NCAA schools made $4.4 billion off their athletic programs, close to two-thirds of it just from men's football and basketball. And, and that is billions with a B. Uh, over the next decade, those profits nearly doubled to $8.5 billion, but that's not even the mind-bending part. Matt, what percentage of that goes to the athletes and how is it paid to them? So we calculate that about 7% of that revenue is paid to the athletes. 7%. That's right. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an estimate, but what we're trying to calculate here is the, the money that the athletes get to cover the cost of attending college. They get a modest stipend for living expenses, but, but that's it. That's all they're allowed to receive. And how do they get that? Is it basically that the school just pays their tuition and their room and board for them, and then that's pretty much it? Yeah, it's tuition, room and board. They can cover cover some meals, and and that's it. The NCAA basically requires that the colleges um, are limited to only paying what I've just described. They can't they can't they can't bid up their salaries. They can't try to offer more to to lure better athletes. They're restricted exactly to that amount. And really, nobody else can offer them anything either. Yeah, I mean, they could try to play professional sports overseas in Europe. That's something that comes up from time to time. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of these student athletes would like the college experience. But yeah, that's that's all they can do. All right. So there's no salary for the players, no bonuses. They can't accept gifts, no sponsorships. Michael, can you give us a quick reminder of the basic arguments against paying or somehow compensating amateur college athletes? even while they're generating massive revenues for their schools. What's the reasoning been historically? Sure. So the NCAA and its member schools have raised a number of arguments. One is that it preserves competitive balance, that if schools were paying salaries, some would be situated in a way that they would basically buy up 
all the best players, and that would prevent other schools from having a chance to compete. Now, we can talk about why that argument has a number of flaws, but just stating what they have argued, there's also the issue of equity on campus that if the football team and the men's basketball team are being paid in some form or another, it would put them in an advantageous position over other classmates on other teams, including women athletes. There's Title IX that would potentially prevent that type of framework where some players are getting paid and others aren't. The argument, another argument is that it just undermines the notion that they're college students, that the NCAA has a series of rules in place to ensure that there's academic integrity and that if athletes were being paid, that their focus would be on athletics rather than academics. And that's the still the same argument that's being made, right, to this day. It's the same argument that's been made for decades at this point, even though the stakes are wildly different than back then. Right, Michael? Yeah. An additional argument has surfaced in recent years in the sense that amateurism has been portrayed as driving consumer demand. That was a big issue. Ed O'Bannon brought a historic case against the NCAA over the use of college athletes and former college athletes in video games without their consent and without paying them. The NCAA has argued that part of the reason why consumers like college sports is that the players aren't paid. Again, Mm. there are plenty of rebuttals to that, but the idea is that it distinguishes college sports from pro sports, that if college athletes were paid, it would be akin to the minor leagues. And Matt referenced players going to play abroad, sort of a a lesser form of the pro sports that we would see with the NBA or NFL, uh, that it would diminish consumer interest. And Matt, back to you. I was struck by part of your study where it says, you know, yeah, of course, everybody refers to this as amateur sports, but that the economic reality is really that these are now complex commercial enterprises, hardly extracurricular. Is it possible to pinpoint when that changed? You know, I was a sports reporter back in the mid-90s, and and we certainly were debating this back then. Uh, Does it go back even further? That's an interesting question. I I think what we found when we looked into this was a lot of the growth came from the way that the colleges, as they are grouped together into athletic conferences, negotiated the sale of media rights. So what we see when we look back over the last couple of years and decades is that the athletic conferences have gotten very sophisticated in terms of how they negotiate the ability to broadcast games. You know, there's a Big Ten network now, for example, that broadcasts all of the sports of all of the teams in the Big Ten Athletic Conference. And I think that that sort of shows the, the professionalization of the enterprise. I mean, the, the negotiation of this contract is very sophisticated and it provides a lot of revenue for all of the schools that are in that athletic conference. Can you give us a little more sense of the magnitude of the money here? I, I talked about the overall profits that are seen by schools nationwide in, in Division One, but when you look at, say, you know, the TV contracts you just mentioned, coaching salaries, bowl payments, tournaments, can you top line what you found in terms of some recent dollar figures? Just give us a couple examples. Well, I think just put some numbers on the table. In 2018, the Big Ten earned about $760 million dollars in revenue, that's across all the schools in the conference, paid $50 million to each of its conference members. Uh, Some of the numbers we have in our research about the salaries are that if you add up the salaries across all the coaches in in, um, men's football, for example, 
for many universities, it can add up to millions of dollars. And I guess the other thing I would mention is that we also study the amount of spending on athletic facilities. I don't have specific numbers here, but we have a number of uh, stories in the paper that I find fascinating about the lavish athletic facilities that athletic departments spend on. They include things like miniature golf courses and lazy rivers. And I mean, to an economist, you know, this makes a lot of sense. You can't pay your players more to try to recruit them. And so you have to recruit them in some other way. So instead of using a wage, you use what labor economists would call a non-wage amenity, you know, things like fancy athletic facilities. I think it was the University of Central Florida you talked about built a $25 million facility with, with that river that you mentioned. Lazy rivers are a lot of fun. A river. <laughs> wow. Okay. Michael, how can anyone argue with the straight face that this is not a commercial enterprise? Yeah, I don't know, because it is a commercial enterprise. <laughs> and I yeah. think Matt, you know, Matt just noted how if you can't pay the player, you pay everything around him or her, right? And I, I think Matt really explain that in a way that that's hard to rebut. So there's all this money sloshing around. Let's briefly outline how these schools, their athletic departments get that money. Matt, you categorize two revenue streams. The first is from things like uh, ticket sales, licensing, probably biggest of all those media rights. And second, money from the universities themselves, right? And this creates a real bifurcation amongst the schools. Can you talk a little bit about that? What we found, and this surprised a lot of my colleagues, I think they just hadn't seen the data presented this way before, but if you categorize schools based on how much revenue their athletic department brings in and how much support the athletic department gets from the rest of the university, you basically see in the data, you see two clusters of schools. You see a cluster where the athletic department appears to be basically a, a self-financed enterprise, a sophisticated commercial enterprise as we've been discussing. And then you see another cluster of schools where the athletic department gets a lot of revenue directly from the university. It's not self-supporting. In, in effect, it's like subsidized by the rest of the university. And what we found that was you know, pretty surprising to us was that the self-supporting athletic departments corresponded exactly to the universities in the so-called Power Five athletic conferences. These are the conferences that bring in the most money from playing in bowl games, that bring in the most money from selling their media rights. So then walk us through where that money goes if it's if it's not going to the athletes themselves. We know a good chunk uh, goes to these wildly lucrative coach salaries, but you know some of it also supports other non-profitable sports, doesn't it? Where, where, where does all that money end up seeping in? Yeah, and I think that's the heart of the paper um, in my mind, which is tracing out this causal chain of there's additional revenue being generated by football and men's basketball programs. And where does that money go? Um, and we identify several places it goes. First is it goes increased spending on other sports. That's women's sports and other men's sports. I think we thought to see a lot more of the money going to women's sports because, as was mentioned earlier, Title IX regulations require, among other things, um, equalizing athletic opportunities for men and women. But we right. also see increased spending on other men's sports. Um, that would be you know, things like men's tennis and baseball and wrestling. And, and so that was a little surprising to us. We also see money showing up as increased spending on athletic facilities, coaches' salaries, and just personnel at the athletic department, additional staff that could be training staff, that could be administrative staff. I think what was most memorable for me was just the increased coaches' salaries being not just football coaches, but really all of the coaches in the athletic department seem hmm. to be benefiting from this current system. 
So the money's sloshing around, as you said, and where does it end up? Some of it seems to end up as increased spending on all types of coaches within the athletic department. All right. So with that in mind, let's get to the main question here. And I'm going to ask this of both of you. It, it may seem obvious that this is a very simple problem of, of fairness, right? The athletes are doing the work. They're not getting paid for it. Uh, in fact, Matt, your study uh, says that if colleges paid players the equivalent revenue distribution as players in the NFL and NBA, th- this was astonishing to me. Star quarterbacks uh, in college would get two and a half million a year and basketball stars would get 1.2 million. And of course, it's impossible to ignore the issue of race with so many of these athletes being people of color. Michael, let me start with you. Walk us through some of the complexities that go beyond just this issue of fairness, just being paid for work. Sure. So there is the issue that the the athlete is getting, in some cases, a full scholarship to go to the college and to be able to study at a school that they may not have been admitted to, but for athletics. So the school could argue that well, while everything you just said is true, there is still value going to the student athlete, if we're going to use that phrase, maybe it's applicable here, in the sense that they're able to get an education that is of high value, in some cases going to an elite school, that that has sort of lifetime value for the the student athlete. I think that that has to be mentioned. Now, again, it doesn't mean that they can't be paid, right? So, you know, it's not as if these are sort of things that can't coexist, but it is worth noting that schools do provide that uh, and that there are academic rules that the NCAA has, whether they're as strenuously enforced, whether they're as credible as need be, I think could be debated. But there is that piece to the story that I, I think should be acknowledged. And in terms of sort of the the servitude of the the athlete, I think what we could see, certainly there are changes in the works. I'm sure we'll talk about name, image, and likeness. There's also a growth of professional opportunities for men's basketball players in terms of the, the NBA has something called the G League, which is a minor league, but they've invested a lot into it, and it's become something of a rival to the NCAA in terms of recruiting elite players. So some of those wages potentially could be paid by a pro league in lieu of going to college. So I think those points Mm -hmm. could be added to the discussion. Matt? Where I come down on this really comes from my own experience in college. So I was a teaching assistant uh, at MIT during my last year as an undergraduate. And so I I received the benefit of a great education that I think was really transformative to me. But I also got a wage. I got paid by the university to be a teaching assistant for an introduction to software engineering class. And so I think where I've, where I've always come to this issue is just that if you're doing work for the university that's, that's providing something useful, you should be paid for that in addition to the educational benefits that, that you're mm. receiving. And you know exactly what numbers should be allowed, I think, is, you know, gets very complicated. I think we tried to provide a bunch of different scenarios to reflect the fact that once students are allowed to collectively bargain over their wages, then you know exactly what would come out of that, I think, is, is very difficult to predict. But I, I really think that a lot of the fight that the students are having right now over the ability to unionize and bargain over wages is very similar to what you see all over the country about graduate students arguing that we are students, but we're also workers. And at lots of mm. universities around the country, graduate students have been able to unionize and to bargain for 
wages and working conditions. And I, I just really don't see why student athletes can't be treated the same way. One element of your research, Matt, that really struck me was that the way this money, which is made by student athletes, is, is distributed by the schools, actually transfers resources away from students who are more likely to be black and to come from lower income areas and to those who are white and from higher income areas. How does that happen? And what does the economic modeling tell you about this question of the, you know, the seriousness of this problem beyond just basic fairness? It wasn't surprising to us as lifelong fans of college football and men's basketball you know, you turn on the television and watch these sports and you see that most of the student athletes playing are, are black and that's what we confirmed in our data. What we found when we looked at all of the other sports is that most of the athletes were white on average across all the schools in our data. And so the way that the money is being transferred around within the athletic department, the way that I've described of the revenue going to other men's sports and going to women's sports, basically taking the excess revenue that's generated by football and men's basketball, it has this distributional consequence of the revenue being generated by student athletes that are disproportionately black towards student athletes that are uh, more likely to be white. And I think in this moment that we're having right now discussing racial injustices all around the country, I think this is important to note, but it didn't it didn't surprise us. It's, it's really yeah. what we expected to see in the data. After the break, this issue once again makes it to the Supreme Court. On March 31st, the Supreme Court of the United States heard arguments in NCAA versus Alston. Do the NCAA's restrictions on compensation for college athletes violate federal antitrust law? We think that antitrust courts lack the authority to redefine the central differentiating feature of the NCAA's pro-competitive product. This is Seth Waxman lawyer for the NCAA. This is not an ordinary product or an ordinary market. Justice Breyer may disagree. NCAA, you can let these schools get away with murder in terms of what they give the athletes, and you have to. The court's decision is expected by the end of June. But that case isn't the only thing that could signal significant changes coming to the world of high-profile college athletics. All right, I want to turn to a couple of developments coming down the pipeline that could have really significant impacts on all of this. Let's start with what's known as NIL laws. Uh, So in July, there are these laws that will go into effect in, in five states, Alabama, Georgia, New Mexico, Florida, and Mississippi. And these will, to varying degrees, ease these restrictions on college athletes' abilities to control their own name, likeness, and image. Michael, can you give us kind of a backdrop of how these laws started to kind of be talked about and come about and what they do? Sure. That, that was a very good summary of what of what they do. I, I would say they they stem, at least in part, from a litigation that was brought by former NBA player, UCLA basketball star Ed O'Bannon, who challenged the legality of restrictions that prevented college athletes from being compensated for the use without their consent in video games. That for years these games were made, they were sold for $60, and the players in these games got nothing. And O'Bannon's case really opened the door for states, beginning with California, they were the first to pass 
an NIL, it's called the Fair Pay to Play Act. And it does what, what you just said. It, it creates, it makes it illegal for the college to prevent the athlete from signing endorsement deals, from entering into sponsorship contracts, from being paid to influence on social media. Some of them have numerous followers on Instagram where they can monetize that. And that puts the school in a position where it would be violating its contractual relationship with the NCAA because by allowing their athletes to make money, if you will, with third parties, whether they're sneaker companies or apparel companies, camps, whatever it may be, it puts the school in a position where it can't it can't follow its NCAA membership rules. Now, this is really interesting from a legal perspective because a lot could happen before July 1. There's very much a possibility that the NCAA will go to court and seek restraining orders in all of those states that you mentioned. And the restraining orders would be based on an argument that the NCAA used about 30 years ago and that worked then. There was a case involving, it was a Nevada case where Nevada had passed a law saying, that disciplinary hearings before the NCAA have to be neutral. That goes against NCAA rules. Very basically, the argument here would be under the Constitution, there are a couple clauses. One is the contract clause, that when a state interferes with the contractual relationship of private parties, it could be considered illegal. And then the commerce clause, that by passing a law that lets college athletes make money, they're interfering with commerce in other states. So very interesting days ahead, weeks ahead, the, ne- the next six weeks. So how much a difference might that specific revenue line make to the players on the upside for them and perhaps on the downside for the schools and the NCAA? Matt? Yeah, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to get these numbers precisely because as was described, I mean, the kinds of contracts that are being signed here are contracts with video game manufacturers that you know, yeah. basically create these avatars that that look and act just like the the players that really didn't have the ability to get compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. So, you know, if that were to go away, I think our prediction from our research would be that some of the revenue that's currently going to the athletic departments um, would instead flow to the players who would then be compensated for their name, image, and likeness. I mean, the way that I've, I think this legal landscape is is completely fascinating to me and makes me wish I went to law school. But I, I think I think social media <laughs> plays plays an important role in, in kind of predicting what might happen here because you know a lot of the younger student athletes, uh, like was mentioned, they have social media followings, they have they have Twitter feeds and Instagram pages, and and in the past, if they were to be paid for any of that, like they were to take uh, support from advertisers, for example, then that would be a violation. violation. And in fact, you know, one of, um, so, you know, one of my favorite sports is golf. And I follow these, these uh, young men that like post these goofy golf videos. And one of them actually lost his eligibility to play golf in college because he put these YouTube videos up and then got paid by YouTube. And and I think that's the kind of thing that will become allowed. And the colleges are going to have to figure out a way to deal with that if in fact this becomes the, the new normal. Fascinating. Okay, let's talk about the Supreme Court because there there could be a ruling, I think, at any point here before the end of the term in June. I remember reading after this was argued back in April that, that the NCAA came in for a bit of a beating from the justices. Michael, can you describe this court case to us? Uh, what are the stakes here and how could this ruling, uh, how could a ruling either way really upend the current system? Sure. So it's the Alston case. And the Alston case is very basically the idea that when member schools through the NCAA join hands 
to limit what college athletes can get from their schools, that that's an antitrust violation because all of these colleges are competitors. They compete for faculty. They compete for grants. Why is it that they can join hands to limit how they compete for athletes in terms of what they're paid? So that's the, the gist of the case. And previously, a federal appeals court in California in the Ninth Circuit held that the NCAA can, can join hands and its members can join hands to limit what college athletes are paid for athletics, but they can't do that for academic stuff. So computer fees, going abroad, things like that, that that Hmm. money, which could be several thousand dollars a year and also post eligibility internships, that schools can't restrict that. So it was is now before the Supreme Court, as you mentioned, and there was an oral argument at the end of March. And it was a beating for the NCAA, at least the argument, Uh, the the more conservative justices in particular were extremely skeptical of the NCAA. Justice Kavanaugh said antitrust laws should not be a cover for the exploitation of the student athlete. This is the kind of language that was almost jaw-dropping. I think maybe the NCAA expected that uh, the court would be more conservative in the sense of let's keep traditions the way they are, but they weren't that way at all. And they were just the opposite. They were saying, you're, you're almost acting like a cartel. So very, very poignant language by the justices and certainly not a good sign. Now, oral argument doesn't always predict how the justices are going to vote. Sure. Certainly doesn't doesn't look good at this point for the NCAA. So so what are the stakes then? Like if if the court rules against the NCAA, what does the system then potentially look like? Is it is it open season? Do, do college sports turn into a minor league? No. The short answer is no in the sense that what the case is about at this point is about academic-related benefits. So the ability of a college athlete to do get an internship to, 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 at a company after they're no longer eligible, things like that, okay. or potentially funding their graduate school uh, tuition. That came up. Justice Breyer honed in on that during the oral argument. So it's not open season. It isn't as if you know Zion Williamson, Trevor Lawrence, some of the best college players in recent years, it isn't as if they could negotiate, they could get Alabama and Notre Dame in a bidding war for them. That would not happen if Alston wins. It's actually a fairly modest change, but but the NCAA is worried that once you open the door to this change, it's going to lead to other yeah. changes. That's really, and also more specifically, other cases, because they'll be able to rely on this as precedent. Okay, so then does it does it affect at all kind of this distribution model that we were talking about earlier, um, Matt, maybe you know this, would it, would it affect at all where that money, all that money that's sloshing around, where that then potentially goes? Does it, does it have potentially any knock-on effects for, say, women's sports or those non or less profitable sports that have relied on some of that money that's coming in? Um, or is this really just about the individual players and, and what, what they potentially can get? I I mean, I think the prediction that comes out of our paper is that if you allow football players and men's basketball players to receive additional compensation, even if it's a small to modest amount of money, that you can use our paper to trace out how the athletic departments are going to respond to that. It's going, you know, our prediction would be it would lead to reduce some small reductions in spending of other men's sports, women's sports, reductions in coaches' salaries. And I think, you know, I'd be happy to see reductions in spending on these 
absurdly lavish athletic facilities. That's the prediction yeah. that comes out of our of our project. You know, interestingly, we were writing this, fin- putting the finishing touches on this paper during the the coronavirus pandemic, and the the pandemic is 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 a little bit like this experiment in reverse because March Madness was canceled, uh, bowl games were canceled. Mm. And so that's big reductions in revenue that would have otherwise have been generated by football and men's basketball. And, you know, what did we see in 2020? We saw reductions in coaches' salaries. Uh, we saw reductions in athletic department spending. And, you know, I think a little more sad, sadly, you saw big reductions in spending on some of these other sports and cancellations of some sports, other sports seasons. So I think that's where you can try to predict. I mean, it's never, it's, it's not an exact science, but you can try to predict What's going to happen as you start allowing student athletes to receive slightly more compensation um, in these revenue generating sports? Oh, now that you've mentioned the pandemic, you know, beyond all that, these amateurs were being asked to play even during this time of potential risk to their health and still without compensation. I guess that really is a pretty bright additional spotlight to shine on all this. I, I, I don't know, Michael, an easy foul to call? Well, yeah, yeah, right. An easy foul to call. You no, know, and I, I think it really, it shows how important they are to their schools, right? That yeah. that even while students were told, don't go to class, jump on Zoom, games were still being played. And it, it, this reminds me of what Justice Alito said during the oral argument. He said, they're recruited, used up, and cast aside. Only a tiny percentage ever go on to make any money in professional sports. So the argument is they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside without even a college degree. So they say, how can this be defended in the name of amateurism? Now, he was characterizing a critique of the NCAA, but it was a really poignant line that sort of illuminates what many have said is problematic about the nature of college sports, that the athletes, and and Matt's paper really just shows the numbers, are generating all this wealth. Now, there are concerns, like, like, like we just talked about, where, where when teams are cut, no one wants to see that. And that, that's an unfortunate byproduct of what some of these changes might have. But at the, the other side is the current system is clearly not working, right? Because there are so many criticisms of it and so many perceptions of uh, inequity that, that reform is needed. The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in the series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Eduardo Porter. And I'm Tess Vigland. 